Welcome to Nimono, or No More Normal, for those privy to proper names. I'm Khalil Ekelona, back in the saddle and feeling much, much better. Oregano oil. Just do it. Trust me. You can also trust me when I say that you will enjoy today's episode. We're doing something different, but we always do something different, so keep riding with us. We're so thankful that you do, and you'll be happy that you are. Executive producer and longtime criminal justice reporter Marisa DeMarco has had an idea in her head for a while. The connection between crime, law and order campaigning, and our broken legal systems. It's not an overstatement of the facts to say that the criminal legal system here had, for all intents and purposes, shut down. It had collapsed under its own weight. If campaign promises had actually reduced crime, we would have room to talk about more issues during election season. Can the issue of crime and what causes it be solved? If so, how? If not now, when? Coming up, a special report from Nimona. Political campaigns spend millions of dollars on perfecting their messaging. In political circles, some say it has become an art. How to create and craft a message that will pull votes to you and away from your opponent. Yet the images and policies that political messaging creates are anything but beautiful and picturesque, ending up with horrific effects on people's lives and the nation's psyche. Nomono, executive producer, presents The Real Crime. I've been telling pieces of the story I'm about to try to tell you in full for at least a decade. In small chunks, in four-minute bites on the radio, in a thousand words here and there in print, Throughout the hour, I'll be laying out some facts from news reports, from studies and research, and on the post for this show online, I'll include links to all of that information. So if you want to, you can dive into this yourself, too. Imagine you're in a room full of helium balloons. The balloons are the stories, and each time we take another pass at one of them, they seem to get a little bigger. If you're a reporter long enough, all those balloons start to press up against each other. They stop being convenient orbs and start being whatever shape makes sense in the space that's left. And some days when just one or the other of those balloons floats to the surface of the news cycle, you can't help but see the whole room and see all of the balloons together. Okay, got it? Balloons. Now forget the balloons. Let's start here. The KUNM team was covering the demonstrations in Albuquerque. And we started seeing dudes with rifles wearing camo. Then, just west of campus, protesters came upon a group of about nine mostly white men on the side of the road with body armor and assault-style weapons. Several protesters were upset and verbally confronted them. We have a The men said they were from the New Mexico Civil Guard. That's a militia. We tried to figure out who they were and what they were doing there, eventually interviewing a couple of them. Here's the host of this show, Khalil Ecolona, speaking with Robert Whitman of the American Patriots of New Mexico. What gives you all the legal authority to take this responsibility upon yourself? It's our patriotic duty. It's our American duty. It's your American duty to protect property? To protect the American people. From uh, we, a lot of military people, I know you've heard before we take an oath to protect our constitution against all enemies, both foreign and domestic. The Ku Klux Klan and white supremacist groups have had many demonstrations since the president was elected, and they're also carrying weapons in a lot of those. Are groups like yours of the sentiment to where we have to protect this property because it could turn out you guys show up to those rallies? We protect the right for the Ku Klux Klan 
to protest according to the Constitution. We do not support the violence in any way, shape, or form from anybody. So what I'm saying is, how is that different? You protect the right of the Ku Klux Klan to protest, but in the Black Lives Matter protest, you all are protecting property. What does that say about where your well, the organization's alliances are? I, I can't say that it's just the property, because we will defend the right of Black Lives Matters to exercise their constitutional rights. the Black Lives Matter and anti-police violence demonstrations were mostly led by Black and Native people. The overall demonstration demographic included plenty of white folks, too, taking their lead from the people in charge who emphasized that these are peaceful protests. Even if the protesters came from many backgrounds, they were out there on behalf of Black people, who have also been stereotyped as being dangerous. Racist words people use about crime, like looters or thugs, are being used about BLM. Because around the country BLM was being characterized as dangerous to you personally and dangerous to America, right in line with other racist stereotypes, protests were drawing more self-appointed armed militia under the guise that BLM needed to be monitored to stop property damage. White anti-maskers, however, needed to be protected. At the very end of May, a protest of thousands of people marched between Albuquerque's downtown and University area for hours. Eventually, they went to Civic Plaza, where they gave and heard speeches. The protest organizers thanked everyone and then sent them all home. And there was a cruise for a while after that because it was Sunday in Albuquerque. And folks in their cars were holding up a few BLM signs. I saw whole families with their kids. And then, hours after the protest broke up, the cruise was completely over, and a group smashed windows downtown and dragged furniture out of a sandwich shop and lit a small bonfire. These folks were not talking about Black Lives Matter. Police lines formed on either side, choppers circled, making announcements over mounted loudspeakers. There were flashbangs and tear gas and what they call less lethal munitions. No one was seriously injured, but the next day I spotted a couple of headlines about the protests erupting in riots, implying that thousands of people attended a candlelight vigil and a march and then just lost their minds and trashed the city. I know that's not what happened, because I stayed to see the whole thing, and a lot of reporters didn't. The news organizations couldn't not have the story. They didn't really have it firsthand. The police were already facing criticism for a militaristic response to a protest a couple of days before, so their spin was emphasizing the threat. And the next day, reporters and editors were just kind of relying on press releases from the police and live stream videos to say what happened. I stayed up all night. I wrote news stories. I was on the air. This is KUNM. I'm Nash Jones. KUNM's Marisa DeMarco, live from downtown Albuquerque. Good morning, Marisa. Good morning, Nash. I'm wondering what you're seeing. You're still downtown. Yeah, so right now, I mean, police have most of downtown completely blocked off. Just kind of walked all the way around, and police have blocked it off entirely. I did a little walking up Central 
um, until they told me to turn back. I live streamed some of those walks a little after dawn, and they didn't get anywhere near the hundreds of views that the scuffle from the night before got. I mean, it was early. But also, who wants to watch a quiet, peaceful morning downtown? Afterward, the city helped people board up businesses, and some extra boards went up on windows that weren't broken. When you consider the context of fear and racism in this country, those extra boards, the apocalyptic downtown, didn't help anything, according to Ebony Isis Booth, who we interviewed for our show. We would just like to have a conversation where we can just listen about what the community needs. Let me tell you what the community needs. We need the boards to come down out of the window because the longer they stay up, it sends a message that this was done in the names of black lives. As long as you are only 2.9% of the population in the state, we can never be the majority of any problem. And it is documented that we were not the majority or even involved in the violence that erupted on Sunday night. Mm-hmm. However, the repercussions of that is an economic shutdown of a specific corridor and district in downtown Albuquerque that is important and essential to the economy. And it's supposed to be done in honor of black lives. There's also something funny about what we're calling peaceful. People are often using the phrase peaceful protesters to mean there was no property damage. But violence shouldn't be used by news reporters or police as a synonym for property damage. Violence should not describe people breaking windows or trying to topple a statue. Violence, when we're talking about events like these, should only describe an act of physical harm on another person. And we can't really talk about violence and crime without acknowledging that tear gas is violence. Take it from anyone who's been tear gassed. And police killings and violence by police are not usually considered crimes. A lot of those morning after the riot headlines were different in follow-up coverage, and a couple even got corrected online. But it's the first day, the morning after, that sets the tone. Those headlines that implied thousands had broken out into a riot is exactly the kind of first-day news cycle that gives militias the justification for showing up armed to the teeth for an evening vigil in the park and a statue protest, you know, to monitor the situation. A lot of these guys like to say they're not racist, including a one-time militia leader in Albuquerque who was later researched and shown to have been a very vocal neo-Nazi for much of his adult life. And you found in these court records multiple incidents of Provence sort of referencing his Nazi ideology, right? Yeah, it does come up. There is an incident where he's painted a swastika on his cell wall. He referred to himself repeatedly with these different titles. So he called himself Aryan Barbarian. And then he referred to himself as SS Staatenführer. He's giving himself kind of a title in the Nazi paramilitary. This is a product of somebody who really believed this stuff. And he admitted to that when I brought these up. That was KUNM News Director Hannah Colton speaking with Stan Alcorn, who did the research and reporting on Bryce Provence from the New Mexico Civil Guard. After the shooting at the Oñate statue protest, news stories said the shooter was being pursued by the demonstrators, but didn't say anything about what had happened right before that. Because again, a lot of reporters weren't there when it happened, and so it's the word of the police they have to use in their retelling. The criminal complaint, written by an officer, uses the word malicious to describe the crowd, which is kind of unusual, casting intent like that. 
And that's something journalist Melon Simonich pointed out in a piece for the Santa Fe New Mexican. You've maybe heard me talk about this before. I attended the protest as a reporter, and it ended up that someone I'm close with was shot. That means I can't report on this story anymore. But many of the initial news reports failed to point out that the shooter yanked someone down right in front of me, and she smacked her head really hard before he started running away. The videos show he hurt a couple of other people too. It really wasn't a bunch of violent protesters running down some dude because they're just crazed, vicious people. The complaint didn't have anything about this. The mischaracterization of the demonstrators feeds that fear and creates the image that there are just unreasonable, out-of-control people on the streets ready to plunge the world as we know it into further chaos on behalf of black people or native people during a time when everyone is already struggling, when everything already feels out of control, it's easy to see how fear was kind of ripe for the picking, ready to be exacerbated and exploited. To what end are these fears stoked? Well, most recently, Trump flexed and used the very fears he was amplifying as justification to deploy federal officers to cities he said were out of control. We have other cities that are out of control, out of control, control. They're like war zones. And to make sure it was a political campaign savvy move, he sent them to Democratic cities. Dozens of federal agents will be coming to Kansas City to help fight crime. Plans to flood American cities, including Chicago, with a surge of federal law. One of them is Albuquerque, New Mexico, where last fall 50 To curb violence in cities like Milwaukee and Detroit. Apparently, Operation Legend is coming to Cleveland. And if you think about it, politicians made the fear they're promising to save us all from. And they're the only ones, right? The only ones who can save us. And maybe that also feels fine for some of us, because we just get to kick back and wait to be saved. People are ready to let go of a lot of rights that way. But no matter how much you fear crime or have been affected by crime, I don't think anyone wants police to be judge, jury, and executioner all in one. It's not what the people who made this system we call justice had in mind. And if law enforcement is doing that to the people you've been taught to fear, how long before it's you, too? Many of these federal officers deployed by Trump are hired guns from Blackwater descendant private security companies. They aren't screened very well and they aren't trained very well, according to the reporter we interviewed who investigates them. Here's Bill Conroy. It's highly unusual to have a deployment that's not coordinated or welcomed by the city and state leaders, which is what's going on in all these cities. Once these agents are there, what their mission is, is fairly opaque at this point. While these agents were on the street in Portland and other cities, we saw video after video emerge of what plenty of people would call unconstitutional use of force, an unconstitutional law enforcement violence. Hired federal guns pepper spraying or beating unarmed people or dragging them into vehicles. They always call these deployments Operation Something. In Albuquerque, the federal officers today are part of this national thing that's being called Operation Legend. 
When we first heard they were coming, all the state's Democratic leaders were up in arms. We're very concerned about this idea that we should just sell out our town for a potential bait and switch to efforts to go after protesters or immigrants. And it's because it's happened in other cities, especially Portland. If we are cooperatively working to address violent crime and gun violence, absolutely. If we're going to try to incentivize unrest, we don't have the trust to know that what we're going to get is help. When the Fed said they would only crack down on the city's crime problem and not be out there messing with demonstrators, all the political resistance seemed to melt away. No politician wants to be seen as permissive of crime or missing an opportunity to fight crime. We've seen other operations get pretty messy and pretty racist out here without ever achieving what they said their goal was when they came. You're going to hear about a couple of those in more detail this hour. With so many people in the streets protesting racist police violence, police killings, and over-policing, today's politicians are uncomfortable. They're caught between not wanting to appear soft on crime and not wanting to piss off people who are calling for an end to racist policing and not wanting to piss off police whose powerful unions can knock an election in one direction or another. I've watched even local politicians lately just squirm and pass our questions to someone else about militarized response to demonstrators, how police respond differently to anti-mask demonstrations versus BLM demonstrations, about the history of over-policing the same neighborhoods again and again. They're stumbling when they've usually got no problem getting a couple of lines together about these sorts of complexities. You see Gene Grant every week on New Mexico PBS. He's worked in media for over 30 years and talks with Marisa and I about the Willie Horton ad from the 1988 presidential election. Gosh, it's like a seared into my soul memory for me. I was working in Massachusetts where Mr. Horton, William Horton, actually spent time in prison. We'll start, you know, with that. And I was working in talk radio at the time at WBZ. And let's, what had happened was he was part of a furlough program that then Governor Dukakis supported. But he was in prison for first degree murder, William Horton. He had been one of three people to kill a gas station attendant uh, in Lawrence, Massachusetts. A Republican governor had started this furlough program in Massachusetts, interestingly. So suddenly William Horton got himself a weekend furlough, which was part of the furlough program. It had been very controversial in Massachusetts for a decade. I mean, this started in 1972, this furlough program. William Horton gets out. He raped twice a woman in Maryland, assaulted her husband, stabbed her husband, was recaught by the Prince George County Police and put back in prison. When Dukakis ran in 88 for that presidential bid and he got the nomination on the Democratic side of the ticket, Republicans sniffed it out. They got a sense of the William Horton thing. They figured out what was going on in the the now infamous Lee Atwater, who ran George Bush's campaign, who famously said, we're going to talk about Willie Horton so much, people are going to think he's Dukakis's running mate. And that's exactly what they did. They came up with an ad that was so incendiary, so you know outrageous for its time or any time since, actually. And basically, this ad ran the entire summer in that fall and was very effective in a very dark way. It really lit off something in this country that has never abated, and that is the use of black imagery, black crime, black criminals, black felons, but you know whatever way you want to cut this as a way to get a political message across primarily for Republicans. The goal is to drive people to the polls out of fear of 
of black crime and it worked. In fact, Dukakis in his book some years later and a lot of interviews, he famously said it was his biggest mistake was letting that whole thing go for about three months and he never really recovered from it. It was, believe me, every every political operative since has been schooled on that ad. Do you know what I mean? They may not go there directly, but they absolutely get the fundamentals of why that ad worked and why it works in this country. And it really was unfortunate. That's what we're living with today. This ad has a direct legacy, absolute to what's going on to today. And it was that shocking at the time. It was really like, wow. I remember so clearly the first time seeing it, I remember saying to myself, we did not just go there, America, did we? You know, and we did. You mentioned those political operatives like Lee Atwater, a later iteration would be Karl Rove. You and I are sports fans. So the NFL, you have the coaching tree. Well, this seems to be a coaching tree in itself. It seems like all of these guys kind of apprenticed when they were younger at some point in time. And they seem to have mastered this art of not only displaying racism in their ads, but Mm -hmm. sexism xenophobia, and now on both sides, we're constantly bombarded. People, when they talk negative ads, they necessarily don't bring up the racist ads. Racism is as negative as you can get, but somehow that is different and absolved from the situation. And we see it still today, this kind of campaigning where you're talking about dangerous criminal migrants, riots and looters being like a really key kind of dog whistly word. Part of what we're trying to say with this show is, listen, this isn't just an exercise for us, an exercise in examining racism. We're trying to see where a bunch of really bad policies that didn't solve crime came from. Right. Because we all want there to be less crime for everybody. So not only did this kind of campaigning, which you're right, was not just is not just about ads, but it became mm-hmm. a whole like line of thought. What I would say maybe is that the Willie Horton ad seems to have given permission for this other kind of thing to emerge whether it's in someone's campaign speech or debate, and that that line of thinking has really generated nothing but problems for everybody. And it keeps creating the problem that it's promising to solve, in fact. I I don't think that's an exaggeration at all. I think we're highly addicted to this sort of cycle in this country. I think that's quite accurate, actually. You know, you can see it come up time after time. We could easily, I mean, if we wanted to spend the time doing it from 88 up until now, you could probably stitch together every campaign, every local campaign, you know, if you really wanted to do it and, and see the whole thread for what it is. And I think, you know, again, I agree with you on the goals of the show. I mean, maybe it is time to just say, hey, let's put people to the wall here. Do you support this or do you not? And if you don't, what are you going to do about it? And if you do, why? You know, and let's like have this out because there's really no downside as it stands now. This is the part that endlessly distresses me to, to holding these views. I mean, you can just walk around this country, be whatever you want and hate everybody in it. And there's no, <laughs> there's no price to be paid. It's, it's bizarre, you know? And yeah. so again, shows like this in the fourth estate and the work we all have to do to keep slogging at this, it's going to be critical. And again, I think this whole year, this whole presidency that we're looking at right now has forced us into a whole different position to look at things differently and understand that we just haven't been vigorous enough in times past. It's just, we've let this whole thing get way out of control. Thanks to Gene Grant from New Mexico PBS for taking time to talk with us. Head to nmpbs.org to see more from Gene. 
This is the No More Normal special report, The Real Crime. Executive producer Marisa DeMarco examines the effects of racist campaign ads touting law and order and its relationship with crime and the legal system. In the next 30 minutes, she shifts the focus to the status of crime in New Mexico. What does our crime policy look like and what to think about for our future? More is just around the corner. No More Normal is brought to you by Your New Mexico Government, a collaboration between KUNM, New Mexico PBS, and the Santa Fe Reporter. Funding for our coverage comes from the New Mexico Local News Fund, the Kellogg Foundation, and KUNM listeners like you. Support for public media provided by the Thornburg Foundation. Hear us each week on KUNM Sundays at 11 a.m. Find past episodes online at KUNM.org or wherever you look for podcasts. Now, part two of our special report, The Real Crime. The number of people killed in the United States by crime, that's murder and non-negligent manslaughter, was 16,425 last year, according to the FBI's stats. The number of people killed by coronavirus this year in the U.S. is approaching 216,000. So about 200,000 more people in the United States were killed by the virus in just a portion of this year than by violent crime all of last year. When campaigns are talking about public safety and protecting Americans, but they're talking about crime, are they focused on the right issue? They don't have the nation's crime numbers for this year out yet. But homicides are up in at least 27 U.S. cities, run by both Democrats and Republicans, despite what political rhetoric might have you believe. Experts don't really know why yet. Could be the huge jump in gun purchases, they speculate, but they don't know. Even though the numbers have made an unusual jump, they're nowhere near the virus death toll. And the number of people killed at protests this year was approaching 30 at the end of August, which is the last tally I can find. Very few of those deaths were caused by the demonstrators, according to a Washington Post review of all the cases then. 216,000 people in the U.S. killed by coronavirus. About 16,500 killed by crime last year. 30 in relation to protests this year. But Trump tells us again and again, it's the rioters who are ruining everything. Crime is a big part of the presidential race, and it's part of many other political contests around the US. The last thing any politician wants to be accused of is being soft on crime. Those accusations can really turn the tide for a candidate. So at the end of campaigns, when someone is losing pretty badly, Ugly attack ads capitalizing on tragedies hit your screens. This strategy gets traced back to the famous Willie Horton ad you just heard Gene Grant describing that helped the first President Bush win the race against Dukakis in 1988. We could play the ad for you, but it won't say anything new to you. You've probably heard many of its descendants because it helped set the template for all of these kinds of ads. We've seen an increase in assault, robbery, and rape. Four murders in 11 days. The judge decides... Sexually assaulted and murdered his elderly neighbor. Five savage murders. Caught, prosecuted, death row. Sam Brownback, who appoints tough judges. Brownback, because it matters a lot. He broke into his neighbor's home, brutally raping her while her child watched. You've reached 
message 911. I'm sorry that there is no one here to answer your emergency call, but leave a message and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. Crime will rise significantly. I'm Donald J. Trump and I approve this message. Like Jean and Khalil said, the Willie Horton ad also deliberately stoked racist fears. And I guess that's probably not news to anyone who's given the attack ads of the last decades any thought. But maybe the worst thing it did was usher in an era where Democrats would also incorporate what we call dog whistle racism about crime into their campaigns. Now, when Republicans or Democrats took office, riding a wave of racist crime fear and finger pointing, they too rolled out policies and sentencing laws that deformed the country's criminal justice system, in many cases just about breaking it. And predictably, the rate that black people went to jail and prison jumped too. On the graph I'm looking at, there's this line kind of wandering that suddenly spikes as this kind of campaigning takes hold and just keeps driving upward from there. What I'm saying is that politicians for decades have been elected by stoking racist fears about crime and imprisoning swaths of whole generations afterward because of this tactic. It's happening again, and President Trump isn't shy about it. Your vote will decide whether we protect law-abiding Americans or whether we give free reign to violent anarchists and agitators and criminals who threaten our citizens. I am your president of law and order. And listen, I'm not saying crime isn't real and isn't horrible. I'm saying the strategy where you make unproven laws or policies just so no one will say you're a friend of the criminals isn't working. The last minute, desperate law and order campaigning surprise, it doesn't get the job done. It costs lives, it stokes fears, it inflames racism, it costs generations, and it didn't fix crime. Trump's use of racism goes further than that too. So whipping up fear of BLM, fear of a loss of shared values, fear of crime, all of that is part of campaigning. Here's Barbara Jordan of the Black New Mexico Movement. There's a difference between being a, a racist and celebrating racism. Right. Okay. And Trump definitely celebrates racism and he's always speaking to his white base and he's always ensuring them that he has their best interests at heart while disregarding people of color and almost making a mockery and a joke of our plight. It's disgusting. You know, the day that Donald Trump stood out in the lawn and said that the job count was up and stated that George Floyd is looking down. He had a smirk on his face. It was like a joke. It was like a joke to him. When you're listening to Donald Trump and you realize that he's only talking to his white base, most of the stuff that he says makes sense because he's not talking to us. And when we say this rhetoric is racist, at its core is the fear of other people fear of each other, fear that someone near you is getting ready to take something from you, your resources, your comfort, your security. Build that wall. Build that wall. Build that wall. Build that wall. Trump used the specter of the violent immigrant heavily in his campaigns, but data from the Pew Research Center shows that there is no correlation between more crime and more undocumented migrants in a community. And in fact, in areas where there were more unauthorized immigrants, crime went down. You maybe can't say for sure that there's a proven correlation between more migrants on your block 
and less crime, but you definitely can't allege that the opposite is true. Overall, people who move here from other countries have lower incarceration rates, according to the Cato Institute. And yeah, that's not the only racism or its sibling xenophobia Trump and other politicians have stirred up to win elections these last decades. Invisible enemy, enemy. the China, China virus. virus. But we're working with a narrow focus on crime and media and campaigns today. So we'll come back for this at another time. Elise Kaplan is a veteran reporter for the Albuquerque Journal. She's covered crime in the city for a while now. We pick up our Zoom conversation with her where she comments on who the community focuses on when reports of murder occur. Certain crimes really touch people in certain ways and particularly involving kids. I think that's always really horrific and really tragic no matter what, but I think that in general, it seems like it's easier for adults to kind of excuse a crime against another adult by being like, well, I wouldn't put myself in that position. And honestly, that's not true. You know, like we've covered homicides where people have stepped in to try to stop a fight between a man and his girlfriend in front of McDonald's. And all this guy did was jump in and try to help the girl. And then he got killed, allegedly. So I think we want to grasp onto the fact that we wouldn't be in that position, but I think that's kind of impossible to tell. And honestly, in some cases, I think that we should hope that we were in that position too and trying to help just as much as the person who got killed was. Yeah, I think there's something in what you're saying about who we perceive of as being innocent or pure, right? And so maybe it's children, young women, maybe particularly little girls who are white. I think we see nationally that cases that involve young white children get a lot more attention and and long-term attention than do cases involving black or brown children, right? So there's, there's definitely something in there about who we're perceiving as innocent. Yeah, I covered a homicide, I think it was beginning of 2019, where it's two men in their 20s, they were both killed. Both of them were, were shot and killed at the Circle K on University near Manal. You know, immediately everybody began speculating, you know, they had drug arrests, they had tattoos on their necks, like what did they do to deserve it? But in reality, they're two friends and one of them had a brother who worked at that gas station and they stopped and, you know, were talking with the brother and someone tried to rob it and they tried to stop this guy from robbing the gas station. That's when they got shot. So I think... People tend to jump to the worst conclusions, especially when people have criminal histories, and that could be not at all related to why they got killed. And those guys are just as much an innocent victim as as anyone else. Have you seen any examples in the past or currently of politicians trying to kind of take that story and wrap that up in their package or their campaign, either for an initiative that they already have, given that they're already in office, or something that they're running towards? Maybe this isn't necessarily relating to a campaign, but we saw after Jackson Weller, the UNM baseball player, was killed in downtown Knob Hill in May of 2019. He was killed in a, in a fight outside of Imbibe, the nightclub, right on Central in the heart of Knob Hill. That just immediately sparked a huge response. I think in the next four days, they mobilized 50 New Mexico State police officers coming to Albuquerque to try to tamp down on crime and to try to, you know, patrol the streets and really saturate the area. I'm not sure specifically if that's been used in, you know, campaign flyers or anything like that, though I wouldn't be surprised if it had. But I think that's definitely something that showed like a outside political response to one specific murder. It was called Metro Surge. 50 state police officers came from all over the state. They went, they arrested hundreds of folks. 
it was mostly on warrants is mm-hmm. what we saw. And then what ended up happening with that, Elise? What did we see shake out from there? Well, I was trying to keep track of everyone. For the first several weeks, I was just going through the jail list every single day and taking down names of every single state police arrest in Albuquerque, which obviously that doesn't match up exactly with the surge officers, but um, I was trying to kind of get as close as I could. I think I ended up with like maybe tracking about 20% of the actual 740 arrests. So it's not perfect, but I did go through about, you know, 20% of those 700 arrests and look at all of them. And about half of those ended up being dismissed in the first week, you know, in the first couple of weeks. And that's not even counting for cases that eventually get dismissed because officers don't show up after they've returned to grants or to Mora County or to wherever. These were just cases that were dismissed because of search and seizure violations or concerns of even why these people were stopped, all sorts of things. It just, the charges didn't match up with what they said they did. So half of the 20% that I looked at were dismissed right out of the bat. And then in terms of like stopping crime, I think we did see some reductions in those neighborhoods during that time period. I had heard that there'd been fewer shootings that was kind of up and down to, I think it's hard to say exactly, but there had been some fewer shootings in the international district during that time period. But then there were shootings elsewhere. So I just kind of pushed it to other parts of the city. I mean, it's been a year now, a year and a half, and I don't think anything, any long-term changes have been made. That's Elise Kaplan of the Albuquerque Journal. Back to The Real Crime by Marisa DeMarco. So listen, the homicide rate was really high in Albuquerque last year. 81 people were murdered. And 2020 was looking better, but not great. In the first two-thirds of this year, there were 54. Coronavirus, meantime, killed 184 people in Bernalillo County. Those are imperfect corollaries, one city, one county, but I think it's pretty safe to say the virus will kill more people than crime will out this way, too. By a lot. What I'm telling you this hour is that crime is hard to solve. Harder than a campaign promise, harder than flooding some neighborhood with police, harder than three strikes laws. But at least with crime, you think you can see the enemy. It's the criminals, it's bad people, and if we could just finally get them all out of here, we would be fine. But if crime is not that simple, if the concept of criminal is not that simple, then you know what's really not simple? A virus. Really, you only have to talk to one person whose mom died from this thing, or partner, or best friend, or spouse. He was a big guy. And he looked mean, <laughs> but once you get him to smile, it was, it was amazing. What we've known for months now, too, is that the coronavirus infection rates and death rates are even higher in black communities and Latino communities in the Navajo Nation. It's messed up. And it feels like we can't get out of this. But you know what we can stop? or think we can stop with some kind of simple hammer? Crime. Violent crime is out of control in Albuquerque. We all know it. We need help, not overheated rhetoric. Hold it right there in D.C. to release violent criminals from prison early, including rapists and murderers. That's Republican Senate candidate Mark Gronchetti. When a horrific child abuse case grips us, the community feels it. The posts on social networks get really intense. How could anyone do that? How could any parent let that happen? How could the state let that happen? How could the police? How can we, good people, let bad people hurt kids? Stopping child murder was a focus of Susana Martinez's campaigns. 
she was a former prosecutor who jailed the supervillains. And it was a big part of the strategy that got her elected twice. But you know what? Locking someone up might stop that person for a while, but it doesn't stop other people from doing this kind of thing every few years. But no, really, why would anyone do this? It messes with me, given that it's hard to believe I'm so different from anyone else, or that there's straight up evil in the world. Evil feels like too easy an answer. I never really found the answer I was looking for about those news spotlight tragedies where a child dies in a gruesome way, but after one particularly bad run of digging into a horrifying case, falling into that hole, I met with Sarah Gustavez, then a reporter for our partner, New Mexico PBS, as part of an effort to create solutions-based reporting through the Solutions Journalism Network, she and I told a different story. Most child abuse and neglect cases aren't those horrific ones that seize us for a while, and many of those horrific ones started out more run-of-the-mill. According to the data, we're actually pretty close to knowing how to stop most child abuse and neglect. It's through prevention. It's through family supports, good childcare options, and preventive home visiting programs with nurses that start early, before a kid is even born in some cases. You're funny. Sixteen-month-old Donnie yeah. is closing in on my microphone. <laughs> Donnie tries to eat it. <laughs> the numbers show dramatically positive results. This has been researched and tested a lot over the years, and the recommendations have become specific. If they rolled these things out widely, we might see a huge drop in the number of cases. And when I say something like number of cases, we lose the humanity in this. If these programs are widespread and run well, we would have way fewer kids in our state who are hurt, hungry, or fending for themselves. And it would take years to show all of the improvements that could come from that and how they would fan out, bettering our numbers in health, education, and economy and maybe even crime. But how do you sell that kind of a solution to an outraged and fearful public? Or to a politician in a four-year term who's gonna have to start campaigning again in two? Maybe to start with, it's by saying that the punitive mindset we've been in coming straight off campaign trails wasn't working. Governor Martinez threw more and more money to a punishing children, youth, and families department. Meanwhile, the fledgling prevention programs were meeting just a tiny portion of the need in the state. And the rates of child abuse and neglect in New Mexico kept rising throughout Martinez's terms. So we kind of do know what works in solving child abuse and neglect. It's just not an answer that satisfies a desperate and vengeful electorate who's wondering why didn't the police or the state stop this brutal thing from happening. In truth, Police don't really stop these crimes overall. They come after one has occurred, or maybe when one is about to occur, but someone has to call them, has to feel like it's okay to call them. Harsh penalties don't deter crime. According to, get ready for this source, the United States Department of Justice. More severe laws don't deter crimes, the DOJ reports, not even the death penalty. Time in prison doesn't deter crimes either, according to the DOJ. And these tough on crime laws fill up our jails and prisons, fill up our courts until they're bursting at the seams.
years ago, I was interviewing the new warden at the Bernalillo County Jail. He said something in passing that grabbed my ear. He said the jail had become the biggest mental health facility in the state, and the way people got there was in the back of a police car. Governor Martinez decimated the state's behavioral health facilities. People with substance use problems or mental health concerns would get to the jail, in some cases get stabilized, and then get released with a couple days worth of medications in their pocket. Some people, jail administrators told me, would sell their new meds they had left the jail with and buy cheaper street drugs that would last longer so they could stabilize themselves and then end up back in jail when something else went sideways. During the pandemic, many of the state's jails cut their populations down quite a bit, by a third. We don't have all the numbers in yet, but it's looking like we're not seeing a huge spike in crime in New Mexico either. Jails are under individual counties' control. Prisons are different. They're all part of the state's Department of Corrections, with a good portion of those operated by private companies. Present-day Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham has been slow to release eligible prisoners, even with the coronavirus threat in the state's prisons and the outbreaks. Maybe because we know what the billboards and ads will look like and sound like next election cycle. Lujan Grisham could end up on the wrong side of a Willie Horton ad. We've talked about what we know doesn't deter crime. Let me tell you about something that has been shown by studies, by data, to deter crime. Recidivism is a big deal in New Mexico. More than half of the people who are released from prison head back there within three years. They commit a crime and they go back. Years ago, I was interviewing a man who'd spent a lot of time in and out of prison. He'd been out for a while when we met and was working on a project to help other men avoid the trap of recidivism. And we were talking about what it's like to feel ashamed of calling your family. Because the call is expensive and you're not able to provide for your family anymore, so you hate to be an expense too. It's hard to do. And it's a privilege that often gets taken away by prison staff when you're punished anyway so it's easier not to want it. But people just do need their people. It's no coincidence that one of the harshest punishments someone gets once they're already behind the walls is solitary confinement. People who talk to their family members while they're in prison are more likely not to head back there once they're out, according to the stats. And just about everyone who is in prison will leave one day. Even though contact with family members is proven to be a deterrent to committing another crime once they're out, making family contact gets billed during campaigns as perks for prisoners, part of a lavish lifestyle on the inside. The guy I was talking to said something that really stuck with me. Prison, he said, started to feel like real life to him. And when he was on the outside, it felt like a vacation or a dream or something. Jeff Proctor is a contributing editor for the Santa Fe Reporter, who's been covering law enforcement and the legal system in New Mexico for well over a decade. Marisa and I hit him up on Zoom to talk with him. We pick up our conversation in progress as he talks about the imaging of crime and its effects. I remember when there was a big push for new gang legislation back in 2007, 8, and 9. The Albuquerque Journal, where I actually worked at the time, did a series on what the police were calling the so-called Memphis mob. 
and they ran this front page story that was a big rogues gallery of young black faces under this massive black bold headline, police bust Memphis mob. Well, it turns out that the Memphis mob is not a thing that exists. It's a term that the cops came up with themselves and fed to another reporter at the journal and used as a way to advance and further their prosecutions in those cases, and also as a push for new and stiffer anti-gang legislation. Fast forward, come to find out years later, that notion of the Memphis mob ended up factoring again into a, a big ATF operation that was carried out in Albuquerque in 2016. The ATF rounded up a massively disciplined number of black folks and we come to find out well into my reporting on that story that part of what led the ATF to all of these black men was APD saying hey Memphis mob so it made another appearance there that's one example typically what you see in New Mexico is more of the neck tattooed Hispanic young man who gets that sort of front page treatment or top of the 10 o'clock broadcast treatment and often what ends up happening in terms of the political context is some of these cases get posterized and they're used either in policy debate and pushes for new legislation or in political campaigns. You see this one case where there's this incredibly brutal killing and that's used either to, to try to elect a certain kind of candidate or to push for new laws. The one last thing I want to say, um, and I think this will resonate with listeners because it's happening again right now. One thing that we have seen in terms of the sort of law and order fear-mongering that never really amounts to much is the push for more police officers at APD. We have seen this over and over and over again, going all the way back to Marty Chavez, right on through R.J. Barry, and right into Tim Keller right now, who's getting ready to start running for re-election. There's always been this notion that APD doesn't have enough cops. And that's a big part of the reason that we have more crime. So what you'll see on the campaign trail is a promise to have 1,000 cops, 1,100 cops, 1,200 cops, and beyond. And the number that gets thrown out is a super arbitrary number that, frankly, is concocted by law enforcement think tanks that are pushed by police unions. It's not a number that means anything, but it's a, it's a direct connection between a political campaign and people whose votes they're asking for. So we're talking about no politicians want to look soft on crime, and at least if they're not heavily selling law and order, they don't want to be accused of being on the side of criminals. And so they end up with a lot of people scrambling to show their commitment to law and order and to pass laws, really harsh laws, to you know make sure the criminal justice system is locking people up. But we know that that doesn't really end up solving crime, this path that we've been on, it doesn't end up lowering the crime rates. But we also saw it really produce a strain on prisons and jails and on courts. Can you recap a little bit for us about where we were a couple of years ago with regards to the actual criminal justice system getting weighed down? Albuquerque is the lens through which to examine that. It's not an overstatement of the facts to say that the criminal legal system here had, for all intents and purposes, shut down it had collapsed under its own weight. So we're rewinding now to sort of late 2013 
through mid 2015. It got to the point where our jail, which by the way, was overcrowded the day it opened in 2002, it had gotten to the point where they were 30, 40, and sometimes even 50% above capacity every day there. And that's because people were sitting in jail awaiting their cases to be adjudicated. And that is because of a couple of factors. Number one, as you said, we had passed a massive amount of laws, just a, a huge volume of different kinds of ways that you could break the criminal code and go do some time at the Metropolitan Detention Center. Another was we had a district attorney here in a district attorney's office who literally indicted every single case that APD and BCSO brought through the door. No like pre-screening for is this a good case? Could we win it? They just indicted everything. And so what happened was the state Supreme Court and what I think people don't realize like what a massive thing this was, the state Supreme Court stepped in without a case in front of them and simply told the criminal legal system here, the district attorney, the law enforcement agencies and the jails and the district court here in Bernalillo County, they set a number of deadlines just in order to stop the rolling constitutional rights violation that had calcified in the criminal legal system here in Bernalillo County. And if you really want to circle back to why all those indictments took place, you've got a district attorney who, by the way, Carrie Brandenburg is a Democrat, was a Democrat, ran as a Democrat, but she did not want to be seen, to circle this back, as on the side of the criminal, as soft on crime. That's Jeff Proctor of the Santa Fe Reporter. Check out his work at sfreporter.com. The final part of The Real Crime, a No More Normal exclusive by Marisa DeMarco. A while back, I stumbled into a story that was much bigger than I understood at first. I'd been hearing for years about people in the International District putting up their own streetlights. It was always on my to-do list to get that story on the air, but it was what we would call an evergreen. It wasn't going anywhere, and it kept getting pushed down on my story list, replaced by urgent, timely stuff. I went out one day finally and met Bernadette Hardy, right under a solar-powered streetlight her crew had put up after years of asking for someone to fix the streetlights or add more streetlights in the area. When I was talking with her, I realized this was much, much bigger than a one-off piece. So this is one of the lights here. That's pretty bright. Yeah, it's pretty big, mm -hmm. and it's adjustable. Hardy says darkness along long stretches of busy streets has been a factor in crime, injuries, and deaths in the International District. She witnessed one young boy get hit by cars on Louisiana about a year and a half ago. He died. It was pitch black, and I understand they couldn't see him, and he was just a little eight-year-old out in the darkness. This part of Albuquerque is also home to some of the most dangerous intersections for pedestrians in the state, and people here do a lot of walking. Hardy lives here, and she's been working on this a long time. She says she's frustrated with the city. They've never addressed any of our issues. They just keep forgetting about us. The International District is home to the largest concentration of African-American people, one of the biggest urban Native American populations, and more Hispanic people than nearly all the neighborhoods immediately around it. It's called the International District in part because it's the starting place for refugees and migrants who come to Albuquerque from all over the world. In multiple studies, it's shown that street lighting lowers crime rates, too. 
And so can other infrastructure fixes, like repairing broken sidewalks and messed up streets. Even when there was money from the legislature set aside just to get more lights into the International District, it didn't get spent. Reina Luz Suarez is the co-coordinator of the district's Healthy Communities Coalition. People here have been calling for better lighting for more than a decade. We started hearing all this exciting stuff. People come to different community meetings and announce this wonderful thing that they've done for our community. But then, you know, a year or two goes by and nothing has happened. The governor and the mayor are down to send state police there to bus chops for a couple of months, like we've talked about with Elise Kaplan, spending a million dollars on it. And they're not the only ones. The ATF sting Jeff Proctor was talking about was centered there. Burn Coast sheriffs do warrant sweeps there. I've got 20 bucks that says a lot of this Operation Legend Trump started is unfolding there, too. I can't imagine how much money has been spent sending police to the International District and flying helicopters overhead. But it's probably a lot more than it would cost to fix up the streetlights, repair the sidewalks, maybe add more trees and green space. You see development in the communities around us, Knob Hill and other places. So it's like, okay, the will is there to improve built environment, but not here in our community. And so it does. It it leaves you to wonder, you know, why are we not valued in that same way? But again, we get back to if someone's just outraged about a vicious crime they saw on the news, or maybe your car got broken into again, Is it time to talk about lights and infrastructure? But when is it going to be time? I tell new reporters I'm training that when they pitch a story to me, they have to answer two questions. Why and why now? That means why is it important to tell everyone this story? And why is it important to tell it to them right now? For the record, I'm not the only person to say this. Someone probably said it to me early on, and it resonated, so it became part of my reporter DNA. Why did Khalil and I decide to give an episode to this? Because we don't want there to be crime either. I'm serious. I, like you, want to see the number of murders drop to zero. And I'm tired of watching racist campaign trail rhetoric about crime turn into policies that don't seem to work, that ruin lives, that wreck generations. We can't say for sure what will work, but we've got a couple of clues. And for that second question, the why now, I've got a few reasons for you. One, because I believe crime fears underscore existing racism and breed new racism that infests all corners of our worlds creating this situation where people who aren't white are dying of coronavirus at higher rates. Two, because crime fears were just used by the president to deploy federal agents to violate people's fundamental rights around the country. And municipalities do that kind of thing on a smaller scale everywhere. And three, because there's a bigger threat out there. It's coronavirus. We need our focus on saving ourselves and saving each other now more than ever. Ask your politicians about all the unsexy, politically unpopular things it'll take to make this better. The healthcare, the food assistance, the housing vouchers, the long game stuff. Ask them where your tax dollars are when you need them. 
and don't stop asking. For No More Normal, I'm Marisa DeMarco. That wraps up our show this morning. There was no way to get it all in, but we'll be coming back to this topic in future episodes. Marisa wants to thank reporters Jeff Proctor from the Santa Fe Reporter and Elise Kaplan from the Albuquerque Journal for the many behind-the-scenes conversations over the years that helped form the foundation of this episode. We used lots of clips from the KUNM News Team's coverage today, and we're always grateful to be on this crew. Thank you to artist Lonnie Anderson for providing the imagery for the online representation of this week's episode. Thanks as always to Jazz Tone, the producer, Cheo, Dom Life, and Olaud Records for providing music for the show. Kaki, Pope Yes Yes Y'all, and Bigawatt produced some of the show's themes. Hear No More Normal Sundays at 11 a.m. here on KUNM or find it wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in this Sunday, November 1st for an hour about plans and policy. You know, what we wish politicians were talking about. No More Normal is executive produced by Marisa DeMarco. It's hosted and produced by yours truly. I'm Khalil Colonna. For everyone here in Nomono, thanks for listening.